Date with a Debut is a Words and Nerds and Breathe Art podcast co-production, recorded on a Wagbacool country. And I pay my respects to all elders past and present, and extend that to any First Nations people tuning in. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. On with the show. But I think that, you know, in some of these suburbs on the North Shore, the pre-love of the 60s and... 70s didn't really hit and maybe it still hasn't hit. Uh, it's like puberty blues in a uh, more conservative environment, I yeah. guess. Hello, I am Nick Wasilia, former host of Tell Me What to Read, author of When Men Cry, and we're continuing our series Shining a Light on debut novelists and their journey to publication. If you're looking for a brand new author to check out, this is the place to be. If you're looking for writing inspiration, this is the place to be. This is Date With A Debut, because nothing hits you like a first impression. And I'm, if I sound a little different today, it's because I am live in a studio, uh, which is really, really exciting. I'm out on a Wagbacool country, out, out, out on the University of Newcastle campus, and I'm sitting down with Dr. Meg Vertigan to discuss her book, The Strong Dress. Uh, Meg's had an unbelievable career, which we'll get into in a second. She started off in the coal mine. She's worked in fashion. She's now a teacher. And she studies and she teaches and um, creative writing here at the University of Newcastle. And her book, The Strong Dress, as mentioned, is pu- um, published by Puncher and Watman. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. It's it's nice to see someone face to face in uh, in the studio. We're always doing this remotely, usually, so it's uh, nice to have you in person. Yes, it's much better, much better. <laughs> you can see your facial expressions. I know it's uh, it's it always it can often be sometimes a bit jarring when you're like, oh, I've been used to doing remote podcasts, and now here I am again in the mm. studio. So start off. Tell us a little bit about you and how you started your writing journey. Well, I think. I started my writing journey when I was a little girl, in a way. I used to um, eat up Enid Blyton and um, the Famous Five and the Secret Seven. Mm-hmm. And I'd always try and write stories like that where they're you know, lost in a tunnel and there's going to be treasure and <laughs> <laughs> all that kind of stuff. It'd be funny to read one of those again, I suppose. Mm. I don't know where they are. I, I doubt that they still exist, which could be a good thing. It's so funny. You're like the second or third person in, in doing this podcast. Uh, I was chatting with Amy Taylor just yesterday, and she and she was also saying Ina Blyton was just a huge inspiration for her in terms of that was it. That was the moment. It was like her Ed Be- Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show moment, which was like, I want to be someone made that, and I want to transform myself into that. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm. So interesting, probably irrelevant, but I remember reading my daughter the Ina Blyton books, and you know they're so sexist. Yes, and I used to change the names so the girls were always like climbing trees and getting holes in their trousers and and all the boys were like sewing and crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then my mum started reading her um, one and reading it normally and my daughter's like, it doesn't go like that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I appreciate that. So you've done, you know, you, you've worked in many different fields and everything like that and then you became a teacher. So how did that then lead to you going, actually, you know what, I want to try and put out a book? I think it's something, again, that I've always wanted to do, but life got in the way. Um, having a lot of, I've had a lot of you know, terrible jobs just trying to pay the rent and then becoming a teacher, which is great, but um, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of nights spent marking or preparing mm. and that kind of thing. So um, I would love to have done it earlier, but um, finally, finally, 
I, I've I've done it. So, I mean, part of it is that I did creative writing when I went to uni mm. and I did my PhD in creative writing. So that, I guess, gave me the space to, you know, be forced to have a deadline, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the moment that a deadline comes in, it's like, oh, okay, suddenly you're, you're galvanised into into action. Yeah, and I think that writing, it's one of those things that it's given hobby, hobby status and to take it take yourself seriously and put that ahead of, I don't know, other other things that you're supposed to be doing <laughs> is, is really is really difficult because, you know, you have to do the washing, but you don't have to do your writing. No. Um, so to <laughs> to put it into a, a, into a part of your life where you, you have to do it, I think it's kind of important. It is. Yeah. It is because then, because like instead of just like talking about it, you're actually actively in a place where you're like, oh, I have to do this. You have to do this. This is a core fundamental thing that I have to do in my day to day. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's so great because it has culminated in this book. Yes, it has. The strong dress, which yes. I am holding in my hand right here. I'm sorry for everyone in the audio space who cannot see that, but it is true. It I does have it. a fantastic cover. I have it to is. Say. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the cover because it's got. It looks like a. Like it's a gorgeous cover, but you've also it kind of also looks like a magazine, yeah, a little bit with little catch with catchphrases and things on the side and all the spiel that looks like, you know, new idea a little bit sometimes. Talk me through this. Yeah, it's supposed to look like well, the main character Kate is obsessed with Clear magazines, mm. and she wants to become the next Ida Buttrose who used to edit Clio. and um, so I, I wanted it to. I was really lucky because I went with a publisher where I had um, a lot of say in the what the cover would look like. So I was very lucky like that. So I wanted it to look like a 1970s Cleo with the, you know, the font and the sort of wallpaper behind the, the, the <laughs> girl, on, you know, the girl on the cover who, you know, I guess is our main character. Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Hello, it is Nick Wasiliev here, host of Date With A Debut. And I just wanted to reach out and say thank you to all of our incredible listeners on the Words and Nerds platform who have been listening to the podcast and sending messages of support. It has been absolutely humbling to hear from fellow authors, fellow readers, fellow writers, and fellow podcast listeners about the show. And it is a real privilege to turn you guys on to many exciting new and upcoming authors. The reason why I'm reaching out here is because one of the groups I've heard the most from is a lot of aspiring writers who have been wanting to learn more about the actual process of getting your book into publication. How do you complete a manuscript? How do you find a publisher? How do you complete the editing process? And how do you get that book printed and into stores? Of course, we cannot fully cover it in an episode of the podcast every single week, but I have another podcast that I dropped in 2021 called A Little Idea. This podcast essentially covers my entire process that I went with my debut novel, When Men Cry, from writing to publication to promotion. Over the course of this five-part mini-series, I sit down with some of the biggest names in the Australian publishing scene to cover this entire process front to back. And the best part, this entire series is completely free and available to listen wherever you get any of your podcasts. Please enjoy this brief snippet of episode four from A Little Idea, where I chat with David Henley and John McDonald from Brio Books around the value of a good book design cover and the fine margins you have when it comes to selling your book. The, the biggest risk in, is with, with authors is that they are so close and they're so invested that sometimes they have a quite ethereal picture of what the book cover will look like, but they can never draw it, they can never capture it themselves, and anything you present to them will be wrong because you can never catch that holy grail. So that's, that's the big trap, is when an author has this holy grail image in mind of the, of the, of the book cover. 
Um, and in some ways, they're, they're investing too much in a book cover. We are saying a book cover is important, but it can't do everything. It cannot tell the entire story. It cannot explain that there's a plot twist on, on this certain page. It cannot capture all the characters. It probably can't even capture the essence of one character. Yeah. It is, it is yeah. simply there as much like getting dressed. It is putting the best clothes on the body, which is the book. <laughs> it's an advertisement. That's exactly well, I, was, right. I really felt myself going into a hole there. You got out. You got out. <laughs> to hear more, head to the links in the description or head to my website, nickwasiliev.com, and check out my podcast, A Little Idea, and start your own writing journey. All right, back to Date with a Debut. Let's talk about the strong dress now, because uh, as seen by the cover, she doesn't look very happy at all. <laughs> and so tell us, what is the strong dress about? Well, the strong dress is about um, a psychiatrist, Jack Grafton, from you know the 70s, early 80s. And he used to say that he could cure any mental illness. Um, so whether you had bipolar or schizophrenia um, anorexia, drug, alcohol addiction, or whether it sort of went so far as to maybe you don't get along with your parents, mm. um, maybe you're a bit of a wild child, maybe you don't like having sex with your husband. <sighs> Any of these things could um, lead to you being treated by Jack Grafton. And so um, the main character, Kate, um, you know, she was she was a 17-year-old girl, but I think that, you know, in some of these suburbs on the North Shore, the free love of the 60s and 70s didn't really hit and maybe it still hasn't hit. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, it's like puberty blues in a uh, more conservative environment, I guess. So what is bad behaviour in one context is perhaps mad behaviour in another. Yeah, that's a good way to summarise it because now Kate then undergoes slumber uh, slumber therapy at the hands of Dr Grafton. Yes. Um, And... I'll, we'll try to keep it as spoiler-free as possible because long and the short of it, I want people to go and buy the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, just let's just say things take a turn after that. They do in the in the in the most uh, general way possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, this is a such an interesting book. It's confronting. It's you don't pull punches with this story, and you jump also like you jump between characters as well, and. There's a lot of topics you cover. You cover um, the treatment of mental illness. You cover masculine and feminine roles in 1970s Australia. And also how the actions of Dr. Grafton, of Jack and his slumber therapy, uh, the trauma that that causes as well. I just, I'm just curious, where did this story come from? Well... I was actually in the car one day and I was listening to the radio and they were talking about women who had been put into mental institutions in the 1920s, Mm. um, often for, you know, um, disobeying their fathers (laughs) um, or, you know, doing something really wild like having a boyfriend. And um, a lot of these women didn't get out until the 80s when they closed some of these asylums down and um, until they were in their 80s, I mean. And by that time they were so institutionalised that they couldn't really function in society. So I was really interested in that and I was researching that and then I came across um, this type of therapy that was done in you know, England and Australia um, where they would put their patients 
to sleep basically put them into an induced coma for up to three months and uh, a lot of patients didn't survive this um, and it also it was a, it's a cure-all every every patient got the same treatment so I thought mm. that this was really interesting it comes it's so interesting and I will first of all say just from a technical standpoint this is me just looking at it purely the writer uh, technique side of thing your ex your use and exercise in voice mm. between these characters is phenomenal oh, um, thank you yeah like Kate is 17 she's still learning about the world she's got a shifting attention all over the place and as mentioned she's grappling with the fact that the hippie culture and the free love culture hasn't exactly made it to, to Beecroft, to, to Beecroft <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the North Shore. And then that turns, as the story progresses, into trauma and how she's affected by this therapy that she undergoes and how that it's like taking a sledgehammer to it, the, the approach that they take. And then on the other side, you contrast it with Jack. And I mean, this, I don't think this counts as a, like, this doesn't count as a spoiler for the, for the general, for the end of the book, but we will mention that, I'll add it as a point that Jack takes his life, ends his life at some point at, at this story. He's actively involved in this clinical abuse, effectively. Yes. So how did, where did these characters come from and, and how was it like writing in each space because it's it is a really the contrast is really interesting well I guess the 17 year old girl um well they say everything's a bit autobiographical <laughs> nothing nothing <laughs> particularly that she she does really but um you know we we're all we're all still 17 in mm. the heart um but it was really fun because she's you know beautiful and blonde with you know, popular and nice skin and nice boobs, and you know that wasn't me at high school. <laughs> so I got to I got to inhabit I got to inhabit the perfect seventeen year old girl, which was a lot of fun. Mm. Um, as far as far as Jack Grafton, um, I was influenced by uh, a doctor called Harry Bailey, who um, did take his life during a royal commission, and yeah, I, I was influenced by him and by just that sort of gregarious male that the media loved him and the patients a lot of patients loved him because he just had this way with uh, words and a way with yeah just getting other people to love him even mm. though he was doing some pretty despicable things mm. just the contrast is so interesting and as the story unfolds and we find out more it put me into this Weird space. We were talking about it before, beforehand, before we started recording. You asked, how did the book make me feel? Or how, how did, how, what were my thoughts on it? And I was like, look, it put me in a place. It put me in a really interesting... You said it put you in a mood. It put me in a mood. It, and, and I meant that as a, as a compliment because, you know, it, I felt heartbroken. Again, I felt, you know, confronted by what was happening in front, in front of me on the page, but also angry. Like, it's, it was, and it was the sort of white hot anger that that it elicited elicited this reaction and i think a part of that is because i'm looking at it as a in a contemporary perspective we're doing a, a contemporary comparison between now and then about how we treat mental illness and the issues that go on in that space and uh, and how in the 70s it was 
take it with such extreme measures we used as a way of treating it instead of now where there's much more of an understanding around it. Yeah, I think it was a lot more experimental too. Yeah. So um, a lot of what they were doing, putting these people into these coma therapies, was they were experimenting. There was even um, supposedly a competition between a doctor in Australia and a doctor in England for how long they could keep their patients in a coma for. Um, So, yeah, there, there was definitely that experimental but... Just cowboys, really. Yeah. I think the no other... regulation. Re- yeah, exactly. And the other reason why I think it also it makes you feel these particular ways, and I feel like it's also because that it's it's not necessarily... This isn't necessarily gone. There is still... No. This, this is like... And talking about it beforehand, we were talking about how, you know, I've known stories of friends or family who, you know, a doctor will prescribe them anything. Um, and it will get hit with side effects, but the doctor just does it just because they're like, well, this this is the thing that will probably work and this is what it will deal with. And you were yeah. even mentioning before that, you know, there are still things happening today that can compare to some of the things that happen in this book. Yes, definitely. I think that um, what we were talking about was the new magic mushroom Yes, therapy. that's right. Um, I'm not sure if I can say it properly, the psilocybin. <laughs> um, that, you know, like I'm not anti-psychiatry at all. There's, you know, a lot of great, Studies being done on this new treatment for depression, but I think one example I was giving was in Canada. There was a psychiatrist, and she was married to a guy who was a what they called a self-appointed counselor, and they were putting um, patients under this, you know, treatment with the psilocybin, but also sexually assaulting them at yeah. the same time um, and filming it, which is why there's evidence of it. But uh, they were they were doing this to cure them of trauma they'd had from being sexually assaulted. So, yeah, there's, this is today. This mm. is today. It doesn't feel like we've progressed that far, yeah, if, it, if at all, in 50 years. In some, in some circumstances, yeah. Mm. So this book isn't for the faint of heart, but I think there is, if you are someone who, there is, there is a lot of stuff that will make you think and look at things differently. There are you, funny bits though, aren't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> I should say it isn't all a, it isn't all a down. Of course, there's there is there is humor in there, but it, I mean there is a lot to take. There, it's it makes you think and it makes you re, reanalyze yeah. and it makes you re-examine and it makes you think we need to do something or about this or examine this more. It's a it's a really great book. I feel like you sh- you should be super proud of it. Yeah, I am actually. Like I, I sort of um, saw it in my my car the other day. I had a copy in the back of my car, and I suddenly saw it. And went, oh, that's mine. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bit exciting. <laughs> mm. Before we move on to talking about your story, uh, your journey to publication, I actually also want to ask you and I started talking just before uh, the book launched, and uh, you launched the book during the Newcastle Writers Festival, I did. and so you launched at the Press Bookhouse. What was the launch like? What was the experience the, like? The Press Bookhouse is a great little place if you haven't mm. been there. It's a coffee shop bookshop. Um, I went there earlier because I've been to a lot of book launches that are just in a you know, big empty room. So I was thinking I might need to decorate. And I went in there <laughs> and it was just perfect. It was yep, such you don't a, need to do anything. It's such a cool place. And um, and they were, they were so um, happy to have me do a book launch. And I, I sort of got right into the 70s vibe. Me and my sister made up um, platters with 70s hors d'oeuvres. I even made a, um, a salmon jelly shaped like a fish. Mm. It was really quite disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course we had passion pop as well <laughs> um, and dressed up and um, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. 
Let's talk about your process, your journey to actual publication. What was that like? Because you, you, you had this story and this idea and you put it down on the page. What happened then? So after I'd written it, I, um, or even while I was writing it, I was thinking about who would want to publish it. Um, and I didn't feel like a big publisher like would take me on, I'm not sure. So I approached Punch Bear and Watman and they're a local Newcastle publishing house mm. and they um, publish a lot of poetry and they've published some novels too that have done really well, won some you know good competitions. So Ed Wright, who is one of the publishers there, he sort of says that you know they look at quality, they're, they're interested in quality, they're not interested in you know, the discount book at Big W kind of thing. Mm. Um, they, they like to publish quality. So I was really happy that they accepted my book. And I think um, having that small publisher maybe it got a bit more, I don't know, I, I, got, I got a fair bit of support and attention um, doing rewrites and that kind of thing. Um, so well, I'll actually kind of ask this question right now, seeing as we're talking on it. Because, I mean, I've done a lot of, a podcast with high profile publishers and everything around that. As part of this podcast, we obviously talk about, you know, advice and, and direction for people who might be listening and they go, they want to go, oh, I want to find out more about, uh, you know, going down, you know, what options are available for me to get my book actually published. Mm. The process of finding a local publisher, talk us through that. What are the prop, like, uh, you know, what are some of the opportunities that can lie from going in this direction and, and approaching a smaller publisher, or a local publisher? I think that um, they often have a bit more of a the ability to take on something that's not completely traditionally written. Mm. Um, they'll take a bit more. You know, some of the writing in my books a little bit experimental, and so they they were fine with that kind of thing. Um, I also think like if you are going to approach a smaller publisher, especially. Uh, I know because I've heard um, these publishers complain about it is you want to read some of their books. Um, they, they get people yes. um, submitting books and they haven't read any books from that publisher and you need to find a match. A yes, publisher you do. that matches you. It's almost like dating. So, you know, if you've written a horror story and then you send it to a romance publisher, I mean, that's probably a, um, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> an extreme example. But, yeah, you really, especially approaching a small publisher, need to be aware of what their works are like mm. and, and let them know that you're aware too mm. and where, you, you, where your book fits into yeah, this is just good general advice for anyone, by the way. I want to emphasize that. Like if you suddenly send a book off to Murdoch who, and you're like, this is a fiction book I can use and, the, and Murdoch's most of their publishing is, is cookbooks and things like that. Clearly you haven't sent it to, to the right publisher. Yeah. So always, it, picking and choosing and knowing which ones are more likely to actually push and be a champion for your book is something that is really, really handy advice. Yeah, and one thing I found with a smaller publisher too is that although they're a small publisher, um, that within certain circles they are known and um, they have a good, really good distribution. So they mm. go through New South Books, which I think a lot of... New South um, Publishing, yeah. Yeah, a lot of... You might be able to explain a bit more what that is, but um, <laughs> it means that, you know, my book's in QBD and um, yeah, yeah. Dimmicks and all those places. So just because you're going with... A small publisher doesn't mean that you're not going to get reach. Yes, exactly. So it's like it's a distribution thing. So a lot of smaller imprints can often uh, they connect with a, with a distributor or even some other publishers in other ways, shape or form, and they that enables their books to actually go out into the world and 
be on actual shelves. So there's there is if you've got a, a good a, a good strong local publisher who has connections with say New South Publishing, which is for you, your books can still be on a bookshelf in Western Australia or out in you know in Sydney or wherever it may be. That's right. I I, I googled it. Um, my own book. <laughs> um, I'm sure everyone who's written a book has done this. And I found it's in some really interesting places like Liverpool Library. Yep. I, I had no idea how it ended up in Liverpool Library, but it's in Liverpool Library. So, yeah, you, even with a small publisher, you do get that reach. Yeah, and it's additionally as well, like if you're trying something out that is, you know, not necessarily something that a mainstream publisher would go for, it's a great option. I, I think, think so. It's a great yeah. option. And on top of it, it's a local it's a local business and, you, you know, it's someone who's in the area. You can meet them. You can speak to them. And they're really passionate about what they do. Yeah. And that's a, and that it's often, not a job to them. It's a way of life. <laughs> yeah. And it can often it can, it can be a better fit for that book. Mm, a, so. That's a key thing. It's not just about you getting your book out there. It's also making sure that your book has the right home. At the end of the day. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's that's true. I want to ask you a little bit uh, about the editing process as well, because okay. you said you went through rewrites and a lot of changes. What was that experience like? Because often you've got your first draft and it's just like a splodge on the page. Okay. <laughs> uh, was that the case for you? or um, No, it had gone through a fair bit by the time they got to it. There were, there was, you know, most of the editing I actually agreed with. Um, there was one part of it they wanted me to change a character because it's not like editing spelling words and yeah, it, it's not line editing. They they can sort of um, want you to do. Actually, we changed the ending. We changed the ending. It it did originally end up that um, both the narrators were the same person. Um, Whoa! And, and um, they the the, the publishers <laughs> didn't think that that worked. And you know, I, I had I I had to you know. So I think, well, they're the ones that have experience with looking at these things. Mm. Um, and I had to trust them and trust the process. So that what, that part didn't bother me because I didn't think I'd executed it particularly well anyway. But there was one other character that they asked me to change a bit and, and, and that took quite a few goes to get right. Mm. And I kind of liked it how it was before. But again, like if, you, if, if you know, nine out of ten things you're agreeing with, then maybe this other thing... They are, they are also correct. But I didn't have to change. You know, there were some things that I said, no, I want it like that. And that yeah. was fine too. So it really is a, a two-way street. Mm. It's yeah. very much a collaborative process. Like books don't happen in isolation. It's not just no. one author. It's uh, There's a whole team behind it. It's a, very, it's a very different book from what it was. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say would be your advice for first-time readers and authors who are looking to potentially write their own story and don't know where to begin? What would be the one thing that you would say? Well, I, I think that's a difficult question for me because I teach creative writing at the university. Yes, I know, which is and it's a bit slightly more pointed. <laughs> and, and I think that doing a, a, a creative writing course, like a good creative writing course, is really helpful for two reasons. One is that um, you also have to read certain texts and they're texts that you probably wouldn't normally read um they might not be your style they might be things that you hate but you will learn things from those texts mm. and then you also you know thrown into that process of reading in front of other people reading your work in front of other people and having them give you feedback which can be confronting at first mm. I mean we do it very gently at first but um just sitting in your bedroom and writing and expecting to come out with a masterpiece I don't know if there's anyone who's done that. Like, even if you take, I'm not sure if I'm correct about this, but J.K. Rowling, you know, there's that story that she was, like, in her coffee shop 
and she was poor, single mother, you know, writing her writing her you know wizard books. In actual fact, she was a journalist and she'd worked in publishing, so she knew how to write. She knew the niche in the market, and and it was her brother-in-law's coffee shop, so she probably got free coffee. So yeah. you know that image <laughs> that image of writing in your own little garret all alone. I, I, d- I don't I don't know. Mm. Uh, whether you know i think i think that being um i don't know the romantic kind of assumption that it, like the the fluff that usually comes with like i wrote this story and it's amazing is it's not true yeah. it's like it's it's a it's a fantasy that you tell yourselves and the truth is it's hard work yeah and I, th- and I think like if you were in a band you wouldn't expect to be obviously you're going to be practicing on your own in your bedroom but at some point you've got to get out there with the other band members yeah and you've got to make something together and that's where <laughs> that's when the real music happens yeah in exa- a way absolutely what's next for you will well, you write again I I am I've started writing another book I think that you mentioned coal mines on that I grew up yeah you know, in the lee of coal mines down in the Latrobe Valley <laughs> and um you know people say write what you know and I don't actually like that expression at all because, you know, you can research. Um, <laughs> just on a sidetrack, I had a, had a student once and her teacher had said to her, write what you know. So, you know, you're a 16-year-old girl. You wouldn't write about being, you know, a gay soldier in World War Two in the trenches. Mm. And so this girl went home and wrote a story about being a gay soldier in World War Two in the trenches. And Good. She, and she won, the, um, she won like a, a prize from one of the major newspapers like a short young short story award so I do believe research you know you don't need to write what you know but that's a sidetrack um <laughs> because I am going to write what I know so when I grew up you know you think your own childhood's boring and then you look back on it and we um lived in a little town called your lawn and they decided to dig up your lawn to because it was sitting on top of coal and so um people got their houses cut in half and put onto the back of trucks and moved to another town, Morwell. And so my, my childhood, I just remember, like, you'd be driving along and then there's a house on the back of a truck. And you'd, <laughs> you'd look in and you'd see, you know, that 70s wallpaper fluttering in the wind, you know, from the kitchen. And you'd look in to see what the house was like. And so that's pretty interesting, I think. And we also used to swim in, like, the cooling waters from the, you know, the power station, which, you know, it was thick, thick with this green sludge. And people had their swimming, schools had their swimming lessons in there. And when we were young teenagers, we um, used to skinny dip in there. And it's actually quite disgusting. It's a wonder <laughs> we're still alive. Um, but I'm like, okay, there's a story in here. I'm not sure what it is 100%. I'm, I'm working on it. But um, yeah, we're power. It's about power, I think. Mm. Yeah. I'm excited to watch when that comes out into the world and when yeah. you finally have what it, we'll see what it, what this, what you craft from those fascinating little pieces of of information from the seventies. And I'll also say as a, as a disclosure, I appreciate so muchly that that 16 year old girl went and wrote a story about a gay soldier. Oh yeah. I hate, like I, whenever people say, write one new, I hate yes. that. I, I, cause it puts creatives in a box. It does. And I hate that. I think it's because if you, you can, I think you have the power to write anything you want. Yes. The trick is when you're talking about, if you start going to stuff that you might not have had personal experience with, the trick is then you get it right. You get, get it right. That's the importance I, of I it. Ha- I have to say, if you get it wrong, it can be quite 
you know, when my students are riding, if they say they were riding a, you know, driving a 1969 green Corolla, mm. I, will, I will literally Google if there was a green Corolla in 1969. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Like you've got to get it right because you're going to annoy someone. And my favourite example is, is um, Christos Solkis wrote a book, his first book called Loaded, mm. and he had a bag of speed in this book. And he took some, had a few lines, and then he went out and he went to a party and then he shared this, you know, it was like a $50 bag of speed, shared this with like his friends at party and then he went somewhere else and he shared some more with somebody else. And if you've ever bought a, I'm not, no disclosure, if you've ever bought a $50 bag of speed, <laughs> it's not lasting this long. No, I could tell this, I could tell where this is going. <laughs> this bag of speed lasted an awfully long time and he shared it with a lot of people. And I'm like, Christos, come on. Look, you even <laughs> great authors make mistakes sometimes. Was, yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. It's true. But no, great, great advice, yeah. Don't be put in a box. You can write anything as you long can. as you get it right. As long yeah. as when you when you are approaching those subjects, you make sure you do your research and you get it right. Yeah. We'll finish with some fun light-hearted, rapid-fire questions. So I'm okay. just going to fling them at you. Uh, no pressure whatsoever. All right, let's see. What's your favourite book that you have read in the last 12 months? Oh, I've recently just read Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Oh, my God, and I feel like I've heard that. That's been recommended in this podcast before, I'm really? pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't read it before. I don't know how I'd missed it. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. And I'm, I'm actually teaching – the reason I read it is because – somebody else is unwell and I'm teaching their course and it's an adaptation course and one of the one of them is Rebecca so there's a couple of different movies there's a Netflix series and um the original book and yeah, mm. it's fantastic yeah. yeah it's a great book yeah really really good do you have a favorite word oh autumnal oh what's that when it's autumn Really? I don't know. It just came out. It's actually not my favourite word. It's my partner's, but he loves that word. And it was, <laughs> when you said favourite word, it was what came out. I love it. Yeah. He likes that word and he likes pilchers. That's a nice word too. Yeah, I should pilchers. have my own favourite word, shouldn't I? It's okay though. I mean, like you can, you can start from somewhere else and then pick it up from there. Yeah. Where is your favourite place to read? In bed, on the couch or out the back in the shade on a sunny afternoon? On the trampoline. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I think that was something that, you know, I started doing. You know when you get to that age where you stop jumping on the trampoline, it becomes like a social area with yeah, your friends. Yeah. And, you know, um, back then, you obviously can't see me, but I'm lily white. Back then we used to uh, put the baby oil on <laughs> and try and try so hard to get that suntan, especially down in Victoria, and, and, and read a book out of the trampoline. Mm. Yeah, and I still do. Love it. What is one thing that you've learnt from actually writing a book that you wish you knew when you were lecturing it before you wrote the book? Oh, definitely. Um, I didn't know about copyright. And as a university person, um, you can write whatever you want as long as you say who said that. So in this book, there um, are mentions of some songs. So there's um, ABBA, Dancing Queen, there's Popcorn, um, and there's um, Je t'aime, Pussyfoot. And I had quite a lot more of the lyrics written in. Um, and I assumed that if I wrote um, 
ABBA and some Dancing Queen lyrics and I'm saying it's ABBA, it's not like I'm saying it's me, mm. um, I would be fine. But no, apparently I was not fine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was really disappointing because if I'd known that at the start, I wouldn't have written it in that way. And yeah, it, it actually was a real, um, a bit of a crush. Yeah. Oh, yeah. An eye opener. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What's your favourite debut book that you've ever read? So we're talking any time ever. What's the best debut you've ever read? I mean, I, I do like Chris Osolka's Loaded, even though I just bagged <laughs> it out completely. But um, Pip Williams' um, Dictionary of Lost Words, I, I didn't even realise that was her debut. It's yes, it is. Pretty amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Unbelievable book. Yeah. And obsession, the, the all the words that she found – Yes. Just, oh, my God, such a great and, book. And, and so, you know, she's an example of somebody not writing what she knows and doing the research. And, mm. um, in fact, I, I think that she started doing the research before she got the idea of the book. Like She, she realised that the Oxford Dictionary was put together by, you know, white men. And, yep. and it wasn't just women's words that were lost. It was, you know, lower class people like tradies or, or whatever that, you know, had words that, were lost or, or people who were illiterate, their words were, were lost. So mm. um, it was, it was that, I found that really fascinating. So she found that out first, I think, and then um, wrote the book from there. So, yes. yeah, you can, don't have to write what you know. Exactly. Go by, go by the Dictionary of Lost Words. Just, yeah. just saying that. Yeah. Last question. You get in a lift mm-hmm. and your absolute hero is in there. Who is it? Jonathan Thurston. Really? <laughs> Didn't know you were a Cowboys fan. <laughs> I'm a Jonathan Thurston fan. Oh, <laughs> yes, please. I, I just thought that he he um, I, I I actually am one of a person that doesn't have heroes. I never had the posters up on the walls. I I just don't think I've got the gene to have, you know think like that about other people. Mm. Um, but having to pick someone, I just thought that I never watched footy before this, and um, my my sons were playing and, you know, got me into it. And um, he just could, without seeming to do much, make the whole team work in a different way. Mm. He was like the puppet master in, in so many ways that, you know, if he wasn't there, it sort of could really fall apart. I, I just found him fascinating to watch. Yeah. Uh, he, for me, I actually find, because I do some sports journalism outside of this oh, podcast okay. as well, and I actually think there's a real synergy between, you know, creative people who are doing, making art and, uh, and writing books and stuff, but also sports people. Because yes. a lot of them actually end up transitioning and doing something creative afterwards. Like, Do they? Like Brandon Jack, who used to play in the AFL, he wrote a, a biography and does, uh, and is now doing creative projects, or Adam Goods with uh, all of his ah. children's books that he does, um, just as, as particular examples. And I actually think it's a, it comes from a similar place, except your their, their creativity is being expressed on a field, yes. in a game, uh, how to manipulate and manage the game, how to – it's like chess in a way. Definitely. It's a different sort of creativity, but I think it comes from a similar place. Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch. And often a lot like talking with some athletes, they actually think about it. Like that. Like that and way. It becomes a story. Like I've had friends who, you know, because I'm not a footy person. I've never been a footy person, but I don't know. I got sucked in. And um, <laughs> like, you know, people used to laugh at me because they'd say, you know, the, the um, state of origins on and I'd say, oh, who's playing? You know, that, that, that was my level of 
knowing about football. And when my kids started playing, I'm like, well, wasn't that a goal? And they're like, because it didn't go over the post. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had no idea. But um, but having having watched it, like, it, it really is a story. And I have I have friends that sort of say, what do you what do you see? And it's just these big lumps of meat, you know, crashing into each other. I'm like, oh no, there's there's, there's so much more detail than that. There's yeah. a lot more to it. Yeah. I could honestly chat to you all day, really, <laughs> but I'm aware that uh, you are a very busy person with I people to see. I have another class to you, teach. You do have another class to teach. So I'll simply finish off by saying for everyone listening, go and buy The Strong Dress. It's published by Punter and Watman. Um, and if you like the show, drop Words and Nerds a review. Let us know what you think. And I'll simply finish by saying, Meg, thanks so much. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. It was really good. Thank you.